he was very different than my earlier teacher. He was very, he was more imagination. You know, uh -huh. he would talk about a phrase and he would use imagination. And, you know, one of his favorite phrases was, play with your heart, you know. And, you know, and it meant something to me, actually. Sometimes when I'm playing a concert and I feel a little funny, I think about him saying, play with your heart. And sometimes things open up. Things open up a little bit. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh, and when the COVID-19 pandemic came along and changed all our lives, I had to reconsider how I would conduct interviews for the Rosin the Bow project, given that traveling and recording someone in person was no longer possible. I did have a goodly number of interviews that I recorded before the pandemic that needed to be edited and formatted into podcasts, and that has kept me quite busy. All the same, there are some individuals, musicians, violin makers, composers, and others, who I think should be part of the project, because they have something important to share with us. One of these is John Sherba, who is a violinist and member of the Kronos Quartet. I asked John to set up a microphone in his music room in the San Francisco Bay Area while I set up a microphone here in my studio in Olympia, Washington, and then we recorded our conversation while speaking on the telephone. It was my first experiment with such a process, and I think it turned out well. So here's part one of my conversation with John Sherba. So, uh, John, I, when I start these interviews, I seem to always ask about the journey, the, the personal journey of the musician, if it is a musician or, or a luthier, how they were drawn to this particular calling in life. And uh, I'm fascinated with family story also. So any people in your family that were musicians or any influences along that line, going back as many generations as, as you can to how you became a musician. Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You know, I left to join, I joined the quartet in 1978. And at that point, I moved to San Francisco. And I was born in 1954. So my earlier years, I, I grew up in, in Wisconsin. And, you know, I started to play the violin at age four. And it was something that I was always drawn to. It's something that I really wanted to do and I needed to do. And the way it started actually is that my older brother, he was three years older. He was also a fantastic violinist, really terrific. And he started to play earlier because he was three years older. And I saw his violin and I just wanted one. You know, and I remember being around three and a half when that urge really hit me. And so we, parents took me to the, to the violin shop and they didn't have a violin small enough for me. You know, it just didn't work. So my father bought me a harmonica. <laughs> and what I distinctly remember, I think I had a very good memory back then when I was young, is I was very, very upset. And I remember <laughs> getting into the car with my harmonica. I was crying. I must have been also been a, been a real brat when I was a kid. And I remember rolling the window down, taking the harmonica and saying, do you see this harmonica? It's going out the window. I'm throwing it out the, out the window and it's going to go onto the road. I don't want it. So didn't have a harmonica, you know, when I, when I got home. And so then I waited until I was about four, went back to the violin shop and they fitted me one very small violin that, that fit and worked well. And from that point on, you know, I started taking lessons at that point. I had a private teacher. Also the music schools. Music schools were fabulous back then, not like they are now. Mm -hmm. you, know. you know, not only did I have my private teacher, but at the school, they had a fantastic orchestra. The orchestra director was a violinist and actually, he studied at Indiana University, uh -huh. which is ironic because that's where our violist, Hank, studied at Indiana University. And 
So I would get priv two private lessons, basically, one from the orchestra director and one my regular teacher. Then they also had every Wednesday at two o'clock, they had a music radio show. And that was fantastic. They also had a choir. I, you know, I could do solfege back when I was about eight years old. I've since forgotten all of that, but at one point I could do that. And so, you know, I always was drawn to the violin. It's just something that I had to do. It, it, it was kind of an emotional release for me, you know, and it, it, it fed my imagination, the little songs that I played. Right. You know, I, and the other interesting thing is that, you know, starting that young, you know, I, I was four, you know, there are obvious advantages to it and there are disadvantages to it too. But, you know, I think one of the advantages were starting that young is you don't know really how bad you sound. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, you know, I remember putting on Fritz Chrysler records or Henrik Schering records that my father had, taking out my violin when I was about four and a half to five and Thought, I thought I was playing along with them. I thought, oh, I'm playing, I'm playing the same song they are. You know, I <laughs> no, just, I, yeah. you know, and I thought, wow, this is great. Right. And I have to say, it was such a great sense of freedom. And you know, after you start practicing and knowing what sounds good, what doesn't sound good, you know, what what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to hold the bow, how you're supposed to put the fingers down. You know, there's a certain element of freedom that you lose by that. You know, when you get it all down pat, you go back to that earlier freedom. But um, I do remember as a, uh -huh, as a small kid, just feeling very free, very free. Uh, let me just ask you a question. Um, I, I'm fascinated by something. Uh, I happened to work on a very different project a few years ago in which I talked to... Uh, a brain and mind specialist, uh, Dan Siegel from UCLA. Wow. And um, in mm -hmm. the course of that, he mentioned something called, I believe he called it second stage or second phase childhood amnesia. And he said it's very common hmm. in almost everyone at about age five or six, your memory suddenly gets wiped clean. You may have one or two very you know, specific memories, but usually none. And you kind of remember from that point on. Uh, you you would have remembered everything up to that point, which is what's so interesting. I interviewed uh, one. Uh, in fact, they're twins, and they're they're uh, the Canote brothers, and uh, they play folk music, but they're just brilliant. And uh, I mentioned this, and one of the brothers said, "Oh no, I remember practically from the day I was born. I, I remember it all without any break." And I, I've come across that. And um, but I think a lot of people don't have memories of that really young age. But you were telling that story with with a real sense of remembering that, you know, going for the harmonica and being that young and being drawn to the violin. What's, what's that memory like for you at that age? Well, you know, I, thinking about it, I do, I have, I can remember things going way back. I mean, I actually remember, now whether it's a floating dream or it's an actual memory, I think it's a memory. I mean, I actually remember holding a bottle and using a bottle, you know, right. <laughs> which takes me way back. That would be around two. But, you know, definitely at three and a half, you know, there are definite things that I do remember. I remember we had a German shepherd dog, and I remember, you know, crawling through the German shepherd dog's leg. I remember also when I was three and a half when my, father, my brother fell and they had to put stitches into him and I remember they brought him home late at night and I remember I woke up right when they brought him home he walked past and I remember seeing the stitches and it was very eerie and I do remember all of those things and you know music you know I have a real strong feeling when I hear a piece of music that maybe I did listen to when I was four, five, six, or seven, right. when I hear it again, you know, it bring, brings back very special memories. Here's another one that I remember. I remember my father, he had a Fritz Chrysler record. And 
Right, this would have been 1960, so I would have been 1954. That would have been six years old. And I think what happened is that I remember reading, not couldn't read, but I remember I was told that Fritz Kreisler had died. And I was so saddened by that, and I remember my father put on the record, the cover of the record was a picture of Fritz Kreisler. He must have been you know, very aged, aged in this photograph. And I remember they had a, the, you could see his eyes very well in this, in this picture. And there were like tears coming out of his eyes. He looked very, very sad. And then I put on the music and the very first piece was kind of a sad piece. And, you know, I just remember those emotions. Hmm. It was very emotional at the time. Right. It was great. Yeah, great. Yeah, I love that. You know, it, it was very sad and it was great. There's something about that. Um, well, what about last before we move on? Um, again, this idea of, of music in your family. Your brother also played. What about your parents? What was there? Did they play, or how did this um, direction towards music come to you? You know, it's interesting. I really was wanted a violin, and it was probably because I saw my older brother. He played one. It looked fascinating. Now, my older brother, he actually saw a violin at my, what was this? I think it was my father's father uncle. His uncle, he had like a junk shop in Milwaukee, downtown Milwaukee. Uh -huh. And way up high, my brother spotted a violin, and he was also drawn to it, and he really wanted that violin. In our family... My grandfather on my mother's side, he played a little bit, tiny little bit of the violin. And he has, and he always had very interesting musical stories. He came over from Italy, actually from Sicily, when he was 15 years old and settled in Milwaukee. And the story we always heard from him is he got out of World War I, or not got out of it, but he got out of being sent to the front in World War I because somebody went up in front of all of the soldiers and yelled out, we need a trumpet player. We need a trumpet player for the band. Can anybody play the trumpet? And my grandfather, and this is the story we heard this during dinner all the time. My grandfather said, I can play the trumpet. So, you know, the guy said, oh, Give him a trumpet, play a note. My grandfather, who had never played the trumpet, stood up and he played something. And the guy said, okay, you're in the band. All of his friends went around him and said, how did you do it? And he said that he had heard that he actually was a roommate of a guy who played trumpet. And so he, he could get a sound out of it just by hearing it. So... I think he, he would have been a very musical guy. He loved the opera. He had an opera show in Milwaukee. And it, it was the, I think every Sunday, he would play favorite excerpts from, from the uh, Italian operas. So my father and mother, my mother, it was very, very nice story. She actually played, we had a piano at home. My mother, she always wanted to play an instrument. She always, she was the one who wanted to go to dance class, sing, and she, in the family, she wasn't the one, you know, chosen to do that. And I think she was always very deeply hurt by that. But she, we had a piano in the house, and she kind of learned how to play herself, but she could only play with one hand. She only learned how to play using the right hand. So I remember she would accompany me when I was like five or six, and she would always kind of play the, the same pattern on the right hand. It was, it was very, very special. So on my father's side, it was Czech from Czechoslovakia. But it's also very interesting because the quartet, we played many times in Czechoslovakia, and I remember the first time we played there, you know, I was kind of going backstage after the concert was over and people were were talking with us and I kind of, you know, I was kind of telling people, oh, my name, it's Sherba, 
It's a Czech name. It's a Czech mm-hmm. name. Have you heard of this name? And everybody, nobody, nobody said all of, you know, they finally somebody said, you know, that's really not a Czech name. They said it's more of a Ukrainian, Ukrainian-Russian mm-hmm. name. And then it was very interesting. The quartet played both in Russia and the Ukraine. And every time we played there, people would come backstage and say, ah, that's a Russian name. Are you Russian? Russian heritage? Mm-hmm. So I think if you go way back, it's, it's probably it's Ukrainian-Russian. Would, would there be any Jewish connection? Uh, you know, that is also interesting. My father... My father always thought that, yes, there would be a connection there. It, you know, officially, no. But I think if you would go back into my background, especially on my father's side, I'm sure there yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Just by the way, um, an interesting, I found it quite telling. Uh, we went up into the uh, Val de Fiem up in uh, northern Italy, the, the famous valley mm. where the, the uh, spruce grows that was used for many of the great old instruments, uh, Stradivari and Guarneri, uh, sourced their wood from that valley because they, mm-hmm. they grow so slow, the trees, and you know, they're just everything was perfect about that one particular valley for this exceptional tone wood. But that's exactly where the front got frozen during that First World War. Mm. And uh, so they've had to been, they have to be for, so many years, very careful about the trees that they cut, because often there's uh, pieces of metal from explosions in the wood itself. So oh they have special sensors wow. on their uh, on their sawmills not to ruin the blades. Uh, and and you know this idea of where where something's so wonderful and beautiful, of course, the violin. How I feel about it, you know, is, was also the place of such carnage. It really was. It was a, a terrible. Uh, war, war there. You know, we think of the trench war in France, of course, but they said it was just as brutal up in the really high altitudes. Uh, people suffered on both sides, the Austrian army and the, and the Italian army. Mm-hmm. So, well, I had no idea that was going on in northern Italy there. Wow. Yeah, and that's what your trenches. That's what I guess your awful. grandfather yeah. escaped that by playing the trumpet. By playing, yeah, attempting to play the trumpet. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Music saving people really interests me as a story. So, uh, uh, so this is good. You know, I I really feel it's important to kind of get the bigger story if we can about you know the people who play this music, who make the instruments, who collect them, whatever their background is. And uh, and we we talked earlier on the phone, and you know, I, I took some notes, so I certainly some things I want to talk to you about. But uh, do you want to take it up in terms of, you know, sort of how you, where you went and got your training and then how the Kronos uh, uh, Quartet came to sure. be? Sure. Mm-hmm. So, um, let's see. So, when I was around, you know, age four until around 12, I believe it was 12, I studied with a teacher in Milwaukee, very interesting guy. And it's something that you can't, you can hardly even imagine somebody making a living nowadays doing what he did. And basically he taught in his basement his whole life. And he lived a long life. He lived into his nineties, always teaching the violin, same basement, you know, and he was a fabulous teacher. I remember he, he did things kind of like a a person of routines. You know, every summer he went to Montana to a cabin. Every spring he went to Phoenix and brought us back a huge grapefruit. You know, everything was always on a schedule. And and that's kind of how the lessons were. You know, he had a, a certain routine. He wanted us to go through all of the etudes. So both my brother and I, you know, we we started, you know, we went through Kreutzer, we went through Gavinier's, and, you know, just the whole, the whole thing. And it was a great training, really fantastic training for me. What was his name? And his name was Raymond Albright. And, you know, Raymond Albright, the other thing that I really learned from him was his love of the violin. Not only the sound of it, but also the instrument. 
I remember he would take us down to Chicago when we were quite young, and we'd and he'd insist that we go to the big shops, and he would insist that we would go there and demand to play all of the finest violins. And so when I was around eight years old, nine years old, my brother and I, I remember they pulled out Stradivari for us, they pulled out a Guaneri for us, they pulled out a Burgundy, they pulled out a Balistrieri, a Landolfi, and that was a great thing. And the, my teacher really wanted us to understand, not necessarily, you know, what a, a good instrument that's so personal, it's, but knowing what you like in an instrument, you know, and how you define what what is good about an instrument that's kind of what it's all about so we were quite fortunate i learned quite a lot with those experiences i know when we first talked you had mentioned this idea not in terms of your own story but you had said to me one of the first things you said was you know if i was going to give advice or i do give advice to young violinists i tell them to go into a shop and uh, request to play all these great instruments even though there's probably no chance they're going to be able to buy one of these instruments, but to go ahead and see if they can get the shop to let them play it. And uh, because you, we talked about that, you know, you get a template in your, in your, in your mind of, oh, that's what that sounds like. And that's what is possible with this kind of instrument. Is, is that how you, is that what you meant by that? Definitely. Yeah. And also I think it's important for a young musician and, you know, any type of music, to have the confidence to to go into a shop you know it takes a lot of confidence to go in there as a as a 13 year old and say <laughs> i want to play some of your finest instruments you know it's a very much the same kind of thing you know we work with so many composers throughout the years and a lot of times we have a question and an answer after and you know, often composers ask us, you know, what what advice would you give? And usually the thing I usually say, one of the things that I say is, you know, never, never doubt yourself and never be frightened to ask a question. And for a composer, it's kind of like never, ever be frightened to go up to a musician and say, you know, I have a piece of music. Would you like to see it? Would you like to play it? And it's an important thing to learn when you're young. And so that's another aspect, you know, of going into a violin shop as a youngster and just being bold and saying, bring out the strads. <laughs> right. Oh, you know, yeah, right. Don't you have a better strad than this one? You know, that's the next question. <laughs> yeah, make it very popular. Well, where do you think you, you learned that confidence? Uh, I, you know, often we talk about fathers giving the gift of confidence to their children. Uh, hmm. And, uh, you know, that, that might be just a stereotype, but I, I really do look at the generation today of young people, and uh, I often see that lack of confidence. Sort of just, you know, you used to call it chutzpah. You know, you just, why not? Just go ahead and ask. What are mm -hmm. they going to say? No. But uh, try to take from the world, you know, what it can give you. But I, I do see... Um, um, you know, often a kind of a tentative uh, pulling back in your own life. Who who do you think? Because you said it was this uh, violin teacher who was taking you to these shops and showing you you could do this. Where that confidence? Where do you think it came from? Um, it's a good question. You know, the confidence as far as when I would go up on stage when I was younger was um, I just wanted to show what I could do. <laughs> I, was, I was kind of proud of it. And I think that's an important element, is that I think my parents made me very proud that I was a violinist. Uh -huh. And what a wonderful thing. You know, they could have, you know, you hear about a lot of parents saying, oh, yeah. my son, so sad, he's going into music, he should go into something else. But they knew that that's what I had to do. I had to do it. And, you know, a, a parent will, should notice that and realize it. And when they realize it and notice it, they should make the child feel 
as though this is just the greatest thing that they could do and, and continue further with it. Go as far as you possibly can. That's a good way to put it, and that really is. Why don't we uh, jump forward then? So, you know, age 14, my brother and I, we ended up studying with a teacher in Chicago. Very interesting fellow. He was, um, f he studied at the Liszt Academy in Hungary. He was Hungarian. Huh. And he would, in the lessons, he'd always have stories about Europe. You know, he'd have stories about Budapest, Romania, and he was really very much into performing. And he wanted us to perform a whole lot. We did so much performing around that age. You know, I remember we'd go once or twice a week for the lesson, and then after we'd stay after and, and have a performance of some kind. And that, that was also a very, very important thing. He was very different than my earlier teacher. He was very, he was more imagination. You know, uh -huh. he would talk about a phrase and he would use imagination. And, you know, one of his favorite phrases was, play with your heart, you know. And, you know, and it meant something to me, actually. Sometimes when I'm playing a concert and I feel a little funny, I think about him saying, play with your heart. And sometimes things open up. Things open up a little bit. What was his name? His name was Dr. Dalbert, D-A-L-B-E-R-T. He Frenchified his name when he, they fled uh, Budapest in 1956. Huh. Then after that, I was studying at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. And there I was very fortunate because right in the city where I grew up, was one of the greatest quartets in the world. It was the old fine arts quartet. They had recordings. I th to me, they're still, they're Beethoven. Their Beethoven series, I think, is still my favorite. They're just unbelievable string quartet, unbelievable players and unbelievable people. And so I studied there at the university. I was there for about four years. And there we, I remember I studied with Leonard Sorkin. Oh, yes. Who was the first violinist in the group. And I remember I'd go into the lesson, you know, I, I really prepared and everything with the concerto and the, the etude and the scale. And invariably what always happened is that he would stop me and we'd start, he'd immediately hang onto my wrist and say, move it this way, move it this way. And then the lessons would always turn into kind of the technique of how to hold things, how to move things, and uh, doing it with less effort, ah. shoulders down, right. and all of that kind of stuff. And the best thing about that is, and now I realize it because now I am 65, and the most important thing, especially at this age and even a little bit earlier, is that you don't get any kind of you know tendonitis or that kind of issues. And I think because of my work with him, with Leonard Sorkin, I've been very lucky. You know, I don't, you know, I don't feel tight. I, in fact, it's interesting with me because, you know, the quartet, when we're on tour, you know, we do sometimes on a concert day, we'll do, if we're behind, we'll have to do an eight-hour rehearsal and then the concert. Not often, but, you know, those those days come up. Right. And, you know, then we do a full concert. The concerts, you know, start at 8 and are over at 10, 10.30. And what I do find is when we have a long session, this is very interesting, is that I actually find a lot of people, they get tighter after playing a long time. And actually, after about five hours of playing, I actually feel looser. <laughs> Uh -huh. which is which is good that's good it is and i don't know if it's psychological because really as an instrumentalist as you're playing you know i would say every it should happen every 20 seconds 10 seconds you should kind of say to yourself relax relax and breathe and i think if you think about it if you do that every 20 seconds for five hours. It's a, it's like a mantra. 
And so you should be more relaxed after five hours. That's that's really cool. I love that idea. I really do. And I've I I'll do that once in a while. I will think about trying to relax a little bit when I'm playing, but not on any regular basis like that, which I think really makes a lot of sense. You know, it's mindfulness. It's it's a mindfulness exercise, but about something really pretty important. I think injury is a huge issue for people who play the violin. It, in so many ways, it's not an instrument designed. I, I guess when we were talking about evolution, I think we were talking about this, but uh, you know, we didn't evolve to play this particular instrument in this way. Daryl right. Anger talks about it. You know, your hands are up above your heart and the flow. And I mean, it's a very unnatural instrument. But it sounds like you had a a great teacher there that really helped you at that age when it's really important. I I do think about the injury issues. Have you suffered from any hearing loss? Um, you know, I don't think so. I mean, I would say probably not. I mean, maybe my hearing isn't as quite as good as it was when I was in my early twenties, but I, I don't I don't have any severe loss of any kind. Yeah. I've I've come across several musicians that have had hearing loss from you know the instrument mm-hmm. being so close to your ear and so bright on that one side. Right. So from there, you know, so I joined the the Kronos Quartet in 1978. How'd that happen? It's kind of a funny. It's a funny story because I had been studying with Leonard Sorkin. I was going on to my fifth year, and my gosh, I felt. I felt so old, <laughs> you know, what, what was I? I was like 22 and I felt like, oh my God, I'm coming back to the university again. I got to do something different. I feel too old for this. You know, imagine a 22 year old feeling old. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, I, you know, my two sons, they're older now, but I remember when they both reached 22, you know, I still looked at them and they looked so young to me, you know, which is good. So here I am feeling old. And it's a funny story. I remember there was, I thought I was kind of desperate. What am I going to do? So I remember that summer, what I had done is that I had written a letter to the conductor of the Puerto Rico Orchestra. And he was a great violinist. His name was Sidney Hearth fantastic violinist. My brother studied with him in Aspen. And I thought, gosh, you know, maybe I should go work with Sidney Hearth and maybe play in the orchestra as I'm doing that. So I spent the entire summer working my butt off for, for a tape. And I thought this tape sounded really, really good. I sent it off to the orchestra and I never heard anything. No, no response know anything and i have the odd feeling i (laughs) mailed it incorrectly so but it was a good thing it was a good thing there was no response then the other thing that i had heard this is very funny all of my friends at the university at that time my age they all were going to be making they all were thinking of moving to new york that was kind of the thing let's let's all go to new york and experience new york and I kind of wanted to go with them, you know. And so the rumor, in as of in June, the rumor was, if you can make over the summer about $1,800, you can live the entire year in New York City. And of course, I believed that rumor, you know. So I was trying to find a way to make $1,800 during the summer. <laughs> And I had no luck. You know, there wasn't that much going on in Milwaukee. So I had no luck at all. So in September, there I was, still in Milwaukee. But then what happened, I was actually playing with my brother in a quartet, and the cellist in that group, Crispin Campbell, who actually he's taught most of his career in um, Interlochen, and in fact, he taught Sonny when Sonny was at Interlochen when she was 15. It's such a small world, such a small world. And um, so I was playing in a quartet with him, and he was originally from San Francisco, and he really missed San Francisco. 
you know, he loved San Francisco, he loved the Bay Area. So he always knew what was going on in the Bay Area. And he had heard that there was an opening for a quartet there, that was the Kronos Quartet. And he had heard that they needed not only a cellist, but they needed another violin. So he said, John, do you want to fly out and, you know, do this audition? And I said, sure, you know, when is it? And he said, oh, in two days. <laughs> so I said, okay, you know, I'm game, I'll do it. And then I said, find out, you know, what I have to play. And this was very funny. So one of the pieces, the Debussy Quartet I had done with, I had played that piece before. Um, and then the other piece was the Bartok Fourth, a piece that I didn't know at all. I had heard it, but I didn't know it at all. And so I remember the day before I was going to leave, I took the score and my part to my teacher, who, who they recorded all of the Bartok Quartets. And I asked him, you know, what can you tell me, you know? <laughs> and he just looked at me and he said, well, John, good luck. And then he laughed. It was very funny. And word was getting around the university that John was going to be going to San Francisco to audition for this quartet. And the second violinist in the Fine Arts Quartet, Abram Loft, I guess he had heard and he saw me, I passed him in the hallway and he looked at me, he was like a real trickster. He loved um, Groucho Marx. And he looked at me and he said, John, I heard you're going to San Francisco for an audition, for a quartet. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll be leaving tomorrow. And he looked at me and he smiled and he said, well, John, I'll see you there. <laughs> and then he laughed as if he was going to be taking the audition too. So, and when he first said that, I thought, oh my God, what did I get myself into? That's right. So, well, so yeah, there what I was. was. What, what was the reputation of Kronos at that time? Kronos, to tell you the truth, I had not heard of the Kronos Quartet being in Milwaukee at that time. And then, you know, I didn't know of them, but I knew I started reading about them, and, you know, I knew they had this residency at Mills College, you know, which, you know, famous composers, were, you know, were there in the past. Mio was there, and then Terry Riley was there. Right. And so, and I knew they did new music, which is something that I had done a lot of at the university. In fact, I should probably go into that, too, because... That was such a big part of it. At the university in Milwaukee, they had a fantastic um, lot of um, ensembles playing new music and venues to perform the music, new music too. And I was always involved with that. You know, I actually found working with composers much more interesting. I remember one composer I worked with, he was setting a libretto it was a voice in there and violin in there to a Hess. It was a Herman Hess words. Huh. And I was reading Hess at the time. And, you know, this was just so much more interesting for me than talking to other violinists about, you know, scales, and which was also interesting. But Let me ask you a question, John. Uh, just, again, for someone who has almost no knowledge of what it's really like to play in a quartet, certainly, mm -hmm. uh, of that level. And you're talking about this audition. At the same time that you're bringing your musicality to your sensibilities to the music, and they're trying to decide if that works with them, the instruments are also beginning to meet each other. And because this series is about our relationship to the medium itself, the, these physical objects, what were you playing then, and how did that play with the other instruments, I guess, is what I'm asking. You know, it's interesting because when I joined the quartet in 1978, I actually was playing a contemporary instrument by Andrew S. Kim. And about a year earlier, about a half a year earlier, my brother and I had gone to New York searching for, the, for an inexpensive instrument that sounds fabulous. And we came, <laughs> we came close. We came very close, and it was very nice. My brother at that time was in the Milwaukee Symphony, and he actually bought the Andrew S. Kim violin for me. 
And we spent time with him. We met him. We went to his apartment. It was the first time I had ever been in New York. So it was kind of a special, special time. And where, where was he from? Was he American-born? or No, he actually was from South Korea. Right. So, That's, I thought came, the name. I was yeah, wondering. And then he came to New York. And so I came to the audition with the Andrew S. Kim violin, which was a contemporary violin. And, you know, when I first was working with the group, you know, I think the instruments, you know, you can, you can mold your instrument. <laughs> the player can mold it into kind of what he or she is looking for. And, you know, I kind of did that with the Kim, with the Kim violin. But then right. about two years after that, in 1980, that's when I got the instrument that I've been using ever since in the quartet. Yeah. And tell me about that instrument okay. and how you got it. So in 1980, you know, I was looking, I wanted something, something a little bit fuller. I wanted a fuller sound, especially playing the inner voice. I wanted something with basically a better G-string on it. And, uh -huh. you know, I thought I had to work a little too hard with the Kim, although it was a good instrument. But, um, in fact, Terry Riley has that violin now. <laughs> but um, the I wanted something, and, and I felt, I remember we were in the middle of, a, you know, doing concerts of rehearsing, and, it's, you know, I didn't have that much time, actually, in San Francisco or elsewhere to look for an instrument. So it's kind of the opposite. I did the opposite of what I tell young people to do, is take your time looking for an instrument. But I was lucky. I lucked out yeah. with this. And I, there was somebody in San Francisco who dealt in, in violins and a real character, real character. And he lived in Chinatown and kind of he had, you know, like a thousands of records down there and instruments. And he had... What, his name? What was uh, his name? It was Kenway Lee. Okay. And he, he had, in his basement, I walked into the basement, and he had three violins by this particular maker. It was George Gumunder, and very interesting person. He, he was born in Germany, and then the story is he went from Germany and he worked with a violin maker in Budapest named Nemeshani, who was one of the great violin makers. Then from and what, there, what time? Get, place oh, this in a time for me. Oh, yeah. When, when was he born? Gumunder probably... Or, earlier 1800s, because my violin was made in 1884. Okay. And so the, he, he had three of this particular maker's violins, which is, you usually don't see three like that. One of them was incredibly beautiful, you know, pristine, beautiful varnish. Then there was another one, different model, a Magini model, that actually Gumunder drew a picture of himself, <laughs> complete with his big, long beard, on the back of the violin. And oh, then the great. other violin <laughs> was the one that I ended up picking, and that was very antiqued. It was a very antiqued violin, and it was made for the New Orleans Exposition in 1884. Oh. And so... You know, after he finished it, I guess he sent it out to the exposition there, and they had it shown, which is kind of cool. And it has a very beautiful label saying made for the New Orleans exposition. And so I brought the instrument in to the quartet, and, you know, everybody loved it. You know, I, I have to say I was a little unsure myself, but everybody said, get it, get it. And so then I got it. And I've been very, I've been, I was very lucky. I love it. It's like bringing the violin home to the family, you know. Oh like, yeah. We're dating, but um, you know, and they take you aside and say, "You better marry that girl." You know, that's funny <laughs> that the quartet would all have, you know, the members would all have something to say. I love that. Yeah, that's great. And when did you know that this was an instrument that really was an instrument you were going to love? 
You know, I have to say, the way I feel with instruments a little bit is that, it, you know, it takes a while. You know, you, you, have to spend, you have to spend time working with the instrument. You have to find the right strings. You have to find the right tailpiece. You have to find the right setup, the right bridge. You have to find the right sound post. And all these little things are very subtle. But when all are when you get all of them tweaked and working together, then you kind of notice that there is a difference. And so I spent, you know, maybe I, you know, I would say about the first five six years with the instrument, kind of tweaking it. You know, I knew it was a terrific violin and that I I loved it. But then it's the process, and I think no matter what I had I had gotten, you know, I would have been spent, you know, eight years tweaking it and finding, making all the little necessary adjustments. And then finally I got it to a point where this is, this is what I, this is what I really hear. You know, the other thing that I feel about an instrument, and this is going to sound odd, is that, you know, I'm actually happy that I have an instrument. I love, again, I love my violin, but I'm not going to say it's the greatest violin in the world. First of all, I don't think those exist, you know. And second of all, imagine if it, if it what for me, for me, if it was the end all of instruments, I think that would be scary. You know, the quartet, we travel, we do 120 concerts a year. We've been doing that since basically since 1978. We've been going all over the world, different climates, different, you know, leaving the instrument in hotel rooms because you can't be lugging it around during dinner. Imagine, you know, if something would happen to it and that instrument you just couldn't, you couldn't live without. It would be catastrophic. So I feel fortunate in that I have a good balance with this instrument. I love the instrument. It works great with a quartet. But I realize there are other instruments out there, you know, that, that could also work with eight years worth of tweaking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there you are. You're back to the telling the students to take your time. Right. That's a different way of applying that, that advice. Right. Instead of the, yeah, I love it. I love it. Take your time. Let's listen now to John Sherba perform with the Kronos Quartet, a piece of music from their music CD titled Caravan.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project, to hear additional podcasts, all you have to do is visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And I'll say farewell with a quote about the creative process from the gifted photographer Ansel Adams. Millions of men have lived to fight, build palaces and boundaries, shape destinies and societies. But the compelling force of all times has been the force of originality and creation, profoundly affecting the roots of the human spirit. Thank you.